Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, everyone. Really glad that you're joining us here this morning as we're beginning a brand new series that's going to take us all the way to Christmas called A Normal Christian Life. And if you have a Bible this morning, I'd ask you to turn to the book of James, please. And a greeting to all of you online this morning watching and listening uh, in the province or who knows where. We're glad you're joining us. When you hear the phrase, a normal Christian life, a lot of images, I think, come into our minds. I think for some of us who have done the church thing for a long time, when we, we hear this, there's almost a level of skepticism that rises up in us. Some of us, when we hear the phrase, a normal Christian life, think about the super-Christian, the uber-Christian, the one who spends hours in prayer, who leads thousands to Christ, who's multi-gifted, and sin seems sort of not to affect them. The word, the old use of the word saintly seems to apply. And the majority of us look at people like that and go, either they're frauds or that's something that I just don't get. But then the majority of us also look in the other direction. It's not saintly or superman, it's something else. A normal Christian life for many people has been boiled down to a word called gray. Colorless, lifeless, just doing life as a Christian and waiting for glory in the future. There's no life now, the world's pretty awful, my life is pretty awful, and so, you know, we're just waiting until, you know, the next round. This world is not my home. And then the majority of us, still looking at both options, go, is this it? Is it colorless, the the living, spiritually sort of dead, or is it Superman? What about us who are just trying to be Christians, you know, with kids, and if we don't have kids, just trying to do life and do jobs and do family? How do I live a normal Christian life in the front of other people who are very normal, suffering with the same things I do, except they haven't met Jesus yet? Like, I want to be honest. I want to be real in my faith. I want to be genuine. How do I do this normally? So when I am just living life, and I'm in contact with others living life, they go, hmm, even in your normalcy, there's something. That's why we want to get into this series that's so significant. And to get a real view, in my opinion, of what a normal Christian life looks like, the book of James is one of our best options. This is one of the seven shorter letters or books in the New Testament, and actually scholars call them the Catholic letters. The reason why Catholic is used is because it means, in its original meaning, universal. The book of James was written to the whole church, uh, the church at large, unlike other letters we have, like Ephesians or 1 Corinthians, that were written specifically to one church. The book of James is really amazing for seeing what we are called to be and do because it directly connects more than most of the books to the teachings of Jesus. I learned this this week that there are 35 direct parallels between James's teaching and Jesus. 25 of them actually are sort of quotations right from the Sermon on the Mount, that great teaching Jesus gave, which becomes the manifesto, the job description for anyone who wants to become a follower, and also becomes the seeds, like we found out, for this thing called the local church. Okay, John, one question. Uh, Before we get into this whole series and dive into this uh, five-chaptered book, uh, one question. Who in the world is this James guy anyways? Well, the the answer is, and maybe to the shock of some of you, 
James is the brother of our Lord Jesus. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He is one of Mary and Joseph's biological kids. Later we find out he becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. You can read about that in Acts 15. And later we find out, of course, he's murdered for his faith. But let's start in the right place. James was not always a follower. He was not a fan of Jesus, actually, at all. Remember in our series last year, Meeting Jesus for the First Time? Meeting him all over again, we went through the book of Mark. Two places in the book of Mark, we see something very, very interesting. The family didn't like Jesus. They wanted to shut him up and shut him down because they thought he was a danger to himself and also to them and their reputation. Mark 3.21 reads like this. When the family heard about this, they went to take charge of Jesus, for they said, he is out of his mind. James is one of those. Later in Mark 6, 1, it says that Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by the disciples. He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, and what wisdom has been given to him that he even does miracles? I love this. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters with us too? I love this. And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and his own house is a prophet without honor. James and the family did not believe his claims. They were not seekers. They thought he was crazy, or worse, it is inferred that they thought he was demon-possessed. They are angry, and like I said, they wanted to shut him up and shut him down. He is dangerous, they said. He is a danger to himself. Does he not realize what he is doing, claiming to be the Messiah, let alone the whole Roman thing? It took years after Jesus' perfect life and all his miracles, and all his teaching, and then his murder, and then his death, and then his physical resurrection. Then and only then does James finally say that his half-brother was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, God in flesh. Actually, we find out when reading Paul's letters, it actually took a post-resurrection encounter between Jesus and James for him to believe. It's a small verse, but in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, it says, After this, after the resurrection, he appeared to more, more than 500 brothers at the same time. Then he appeared to James, then to the other apostles. Now, with that background, from anti-Jesus to living for him, then and only then does this book come into unbelievable focus. See, James can come to us as a fellow follower, but he can speak with authority because he has already been there. And the great theme in this book is the power and persistence of faith, which is always seen, let me say that again, always seen through a transformed life through the act of good works. So together, let's strap in as a family and see our callings if we are Christians. And if you are a seeker today, you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you are going to get the chance to see God's great love for you, his work on your behalf, but also his expectations if you choose to embrace his love and his holiness and his will for you, just like his brother James did, skeptical and took time, but it happened. The book starts simply, and you can turn there with me. James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Just stop and hear those words again for a moment. It's important. See, the word servant, it's got a deeper meaning. It means slave of God and slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. It captures the concept of God's ownership over his people and their willingness to carry out and do God's will. It implies obedience and loyalty and service to them. As one wrote hundreds of years ago, an involuntary slave is a a slave that fears punishment and therefore service never springs from love. But a voluntary servant is really no different than a son. He's a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't miss that either. Since he's a slave of both, though he does not work out the relationship for us, the implication is huge. James is actually saying that Jesus is not below God. Jesus is equal with God. I mean, think about this. This is saying that James is declaring that his half-brother is equal and united with the father. To know and see and follow Jesus, the kid he grew up with and probably used to bully, think about it, is to know and see and follow God himself. Either this reality is truth or it is a horrific lie. There is no in-between. James starts his letter so simply, but when you know his background, it becomes very divisive and unbelievably praiseworthy. Yet it also implies something for all of us who claim to have the word or name Christian over our lives. You can't just have Jesus as Savior. You must also have his lordship over your life. See, James roots his description of a normal Christian life in both the saving work of Jesus and also the lordship, the kingly reign and rule of God in our lives. He continues, he says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. The 12 tribes was a common way of saying the Hebrew people. The Jews, those that descended from the 12 sons which, of Jacob, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. But now something radical has happened. The 12 tribes are now used to point to a new people of God. Jews and non-Jews bound together in the Messiah Jesus. The new Israel is the body of Christ, the church. James uses this, though, to help readers connect back to their roots. Israel, the people of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac and Jacob, one should and could and always must call the Christian faith fulfilled Judaism. We didn't hack ourselves off from our Jewish roots. We are connected deeply to our Jewish roots because we are the next phase in God's plan. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He says, by the way, when everything goes wrong in life, that's an occasion for joy. He gets right into it. By the way, it's a command. Joy is not happy, by the way. Joy is not pleasure, by the way. Joy is a kind of activity. One wrote, true joy, honest joy, is an exacting business. How crazy. How countercultural to think joy as we face a torrent of personal trial. Have joy, he writes, when you face trials of many kinds. There are all sorts of situations and adversities we face. I learned this week that the word trial is a very general meaning here. It means outside and inside struggle. That's it. The trials are social. They're economic. They're physical. It's sin. It's the demonic. It's losing a job. It's war. It's sickness. It's family breakdown. It's unmet expectations. It's persecution for faith. It's midlife crisis. You can fill in the blank with your own trials. But I love the word of God, don't you? that doesn't gloss over or invent the superhuman thing we don't like, but is honest 
about the pain and fallen reality we all live in. You know, the one that's been messed up since our decision from Eden. Don't miss it. And this is so needed, especially with all sorts of bizarre teaching happening in North America. This is written to Christians who love and have given their life to Jesus. The teaching that it all just gets better when you have faith is from the pit of hell. James comes and says, reality is when you face trials, not if, it's an occasion for joy. See, James starts his message with the shared experience of our Redeemer and his redeemed trial. One preached this present world is a battlefield where the powers of good and evil are embroiled in a war hastening to its predestined end, the triumph of God. But James does not just say to us as Christians, well, trial's going to happen and I command you to be joyful. He suddenly gives us context because you know, verse 3, that testing of your faith will develop one thing, perseverance. James says react with joy because this testing becomes a means or even an instrument of refining. The idea of testing comes from the jewelry business. Historians tell us that as a goldsmith who allows silver in the fire or gold in the crucible to be purified no longer than necessary, so God purifies the righteous, each one. He says your faith will develop perseverance. Here are words, steadfastness, fortitude, heroic endurance, staying power. As Christians, no matter your background, Alliance, Baptist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, you can name it. No matter your background, we all in our different traditions cry out through song and word and prayer, oh God, I want to know you in this world. I want to be a real follower of Jesus. I want a deep faith. Deep faith. Better is one day in your courts than what? A thousand elsewhere. As the deer panteth for the water, we sing these songs and we cry out, oh God, give me a faith that's authentic. And he says, really? A real faith that's authentic? then testing will come. And when the testing comes, then your roots will grow very deep. But it's right here. It's right here that people leave the church. It's right here where people point their finger at God and point them at you and I as fellow Christians and point it at themselves, and they miss it, that the crisis that they called out for was the place of deepening. See, God even chooses in his kindness to use our own sin and fallenness and each other's fallenness and the world's brokenness to actually produce good. He even redeems that. Perseverance must finish its work, verse 4, so you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Not only does this lead to a strong, rooted, mature, deep faith, but we will become complete. The word in Greek is perfect. Is this saying we get perfect on this side? No. We are being pulled, reminded that in the end, there actually is perfection, which is our hope. The foundation is the cue for every Christian who is suffering in any way. Our faith becomes deeper, stronger, and more certain through the fires of everyday life. Uh, Paul wrote these words, Romans 5.3, Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance will build character. And character will lead wildly to hope. Living in the tension of the now and not yet. I love what Richard Foster wrote years ago. For the Christian, listen. For the Christian, heaven is not the goal. It is the destination. What is God's goal in us? For Christ to be formed in us. And if we want Christ to be formed in us, 
then we follow like Jesus. And what was his path? The cross. So with joy in front of us, real tension and suffering, and hope, and a real strong promised faith, James knows something we already know inherently. We desperately are going to need help to do this. So this is what he does. He leads us to the act of prayer. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should or she should ask God, who gives it generously to all without finding fault. It will be given to them wisdom. Such a throwing around word, right? Does it just mean good ideas? Is it another five-step strategy? No. Wisdom is practical, not theoretical. Wisdom is God's most important gift. This is practically oriented insight into living a normal Christian life. This is everyday Christian spirituality for the average follower of Jesus, living in a messed up world. He comes to us and he says, look, fellow journeyer, ask God. He knows all, he says. It's his will in the first place. He's the source of true wisdom beyond what we could invent or think of. Then James suddenly utters this promise. God will give us wisdom, how to do this thing without finding fault. He will not hold our ignorance or our past sin, known or unknown, against us. But like a good dad, he will actually give it without hesitation. God is not upstairs uh, grumbling and begrudgingly giving out wisdom to his stupid children who just can't get it together. He comes and says, wisdom is for the asking. It's for the asking. Just pray and ask. I love what one church father wrote in the second century. How can I ask of the Lord and receive from him, seeing I have sinned so much against him? Then he says, do not reason this way, but turn to the Lord, here it is, with all of your heart and ask him without doubting, and you will know the multitude of tendered mercies, and he will never leave you, but fulfill your most desires and requests. What James isn't done as he's beginning to outline reality for us. He points out, though, that faith is necessary when praying, which, of course, is the act of Christian asking. Verse 6, he says, But when someone asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave in the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man or, or that woman should not think they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double minded, unstable in all they do. Now, this is huge. Does this mean, John, because I've heard this taught, Does this mean that if I just will myself not to doubt, I'm not going to doubt, I'm not going to doubt, I'm not going to doubt, and have enough faith, suddenly God's just going to give me all this wisdom and all the things of God? No. We do not have faith in faith in this church. The key phrase to understand this, follow me, is double-minded, which in Greek is translated, ready? Double-souled which is one who's divided actually between friendship with God and friendship in the world. The person between faith in the world, a fence-sitter whose counsel and hope is divided and is not, here it is, a committed partner with God in the activity that prayer reflects. Prayer is where Christ and we work together for the kingdom of God to come. Doubt, one wrote, is not, ready, intellectual doubt, but a basic conflict of our loyalties. Doubt is not intellectual. So many of us in church have bought into the lie that because we doubt and struggle with God, we don't have enough faith. That is not what this is saying. It is saying that when your loyalties are divided and you live like hell and you want to go to heaven, that's when your answers to prayer get hindered. Not because you struggle. The person, he says, who is divided this way 
is unstable and vacillating and does not love God with their whole heart or mind or soul. So how can they come and expect and ask God to show up when they're not even sure they trust him because their actions reflect that? That's what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, right? No one can serve two masters. Either a slave will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. See, from trials to prayer to, to, to wisdom to all of reality, James gives us two honest examples of trial. When you first read them, when I did this week, I didn't view one of them as a trial at all. But as I started to reflect, I got it. See, what he does right now, ready, is he addresses how a rich person who's a Christian should live and how a poor person who's a Christian should live. He says, you know, the brother in a humble circumstance ought to take pride in his high position. But one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. This is what one wrote that helped me. James then exhorts both the poor and rich Christian to remember the sole basis for their confidence is their identification with Jesus, nothing else. The poor believer, insignificant and of no account in the eyes of the world, is to rejoice in their relationship with God, who Jesus is, of course, God, who is exalted to the highest position in the universe. The rich believer, that's many here today, well off and secure in their possessions, with great status in the eyes of the world, are to remember that the only lasting security is through their relationship with the man of sorrows, despised, remember, and rejected by all. Both Christians, in other words, must look at their own lives from a heavenly perspective, not from an earthly one. If you're poor, he says, live like this. If you're rich, remember this. But then James does something unexpected. He turns to another group of people in verse 11. It's the world without Jesus. It should be noted that in the Bible, the metaphor of the rich is used also to mean pagan or not connected with God. And here this verse moves from poor and rich Christian to non-Christian. For the sun rises with scorching heat and it withers plants. Its blossoms fall, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man or the person without relationship will fade away even as they go about their business. Listen closely. Using the power of color and image, James turns the thoughts of his readers to February, when in that part of the world, the whole region is a carpet of wild, brilliantly colored flowers. Yet by May, all is lost, all is gone, all has died, all is forgotten. As their minds recall that color, that smell, that good feeling of spring, James brings a strong message to those that are not followers of Jesus and says to them plainly, you by your actions trust in money, in your own good, in things, in what you can do, in your life, in your education. But God's glory and Christian boasting is nowhere to be found. What will happen to you? Well, you already know. You're going to die one day, just like that flower. And you can't take a U-Haul into eternity. Everything you will rely on, you cannot take. Everything you've trusted on will not help you when you face the living God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this is it, ready? Like spring, which is brilliant but brief, so is life. Are you ready to meet your Creator? Suddenly, James flips back. He, he does this. He's a little ADD in his writing. He, he is. He flips back and then goes back to the Christians with trials. 
Blessed is the man or woman who perseveres under trial because they have stood the test. He or she will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Blessed doesn't mean happy again. It's the consequence of living a godly life. It's not a carefree life with a little conflict. It's just inner joy. John MacArthur got this really right when he said, James clearly associates faithful perseverance under trial with genuine love for God. Perseverance being one of the surest, listen, surest evidences of those that love him. A genuine Christian is not just someone who at one point in their life made a profession of faith in Jesus, but is a person who continually demonstrates true faith by ongoing love for God. That is not saying you cannot struggle. Struggle is a sign of life, but he is saying when you just say yes to Jesus one day and there is no evidence of change, you probably never met him in the first place. So with all the garbage going on in our lives, watching CBC and CNN and being online, suddenly these thoughts cross the minds of even the most saintly among us. Maybe God's a thug. I mean, I I love him and I give my life to him, I know, but you know, maybe he's the author of evil. Maybe, maybe he's setting me up to sin. I mean, so much is going wrong. James quickly speaks back to us. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Tempted, by the way, is a very different word than tested. Tempted here means tempted towards sin. God tested Abraham with Isaac, Israel in the wilderness, even Job. This is about temptation to sin itself. See, James is categorically denying that God tempts us to sin, which violates his own holiness. He does not tempt human beings, nor does he act like our own fallen hearts, nor does he function like the demonic and their false lord Lucifer, the grand tempter. James, unlike so many other thinkers and great minds, has no time has no time for sentimental fatalism. James comes to us years later and says, why do I know it is not God who is doing this? Well, let's look at the character of God. Let's just look at our world, and then let's just be honest about our own hearts and our own fallenness. God, verse 13, cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God cannot be solicited to evil. God is inexperienced in evil. He is the only living God, and unlike most other faiths of this world that say the divine can be tempted or involved in both good and evil, yin and yang, our God rejects that. He is wholly separate, and he is wholly without sin. And so James says temptation comes from one place, you and me. It comes from our own fallen hearts. Our own spiritual disposition makes us ready and excited to give into sin. The fault lies with us. The world and the demonic, they just provide the opportunity. James uses fishing and hunting images to describe the terrible process from persuasion to attraction to consent. But each one is tempted when by their own evil desire he or she is dragged away and enticed. The word dragged away is the idea of a hook being thrown into water and hooking a human and ripping them out of their environment to death. Enticed is a word used by hunters where they lay bait in a terrible trap and as the animal steps in, it brings death. He says these images describe our own inclination, even we who have followed Jesus and been saved. He says we are dragged away and enticed. Then after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. The desire which has been touched by fallenness now appears like a woman in birth and the child is called sin which grows up and then brings the most feared to any human, death. 
God cannot be the author of this. For God, as we've heard even in our songs today, is good and perfect, and all good things come from Him. Have you thought about that? Color, beauty, food, common grace, specific grace, salvation and life, all are a gift touched by us through God who is not touched by the things that haunt us. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Heavenly lights means this, the sun, the moon, the stars. He's saying they may be fade one day, they may be blocked, extinguished, eclipsed, shouted out, but God never changes, nor does his decision ever get overshadowed. And then this is great. This is where we end, and this is where James ends in this thought. He ends with our hope again. He says, look, the universe may fall apart. The sun may eventually go out, but his decision does not. And then he quotes these words. God chose to give us birth through the word of his truth that we might be a kind of first fruits that he created. He chose us. Unlike the world and nature that changes his decision to call us, to elect us, to predestine us in love to himself from death to life does not change. What a great hope this should be for us this morning. It's not about my good works or how good I am or how bad I am. It's not based on who I know or what I've been. It is based on the greatest gift of all, his calling. He leads us to be spiritually born by the word of truth. Ready? The word of truth is used in three ways in the Bible. I learned this this week too. Word of truth was used by God in creation. It means that God spoke and the universe came to be. Word of truth. The second definition of a word of truth is Holy Scripture. It is called the word of truth. That phrase is also used in the Bible, ready? When he created the new community called the church. And all three of them apply in this verse right here. See, all of us have come to faith by the creator God. We met Jesus as his holy word was preached. And we came to faith with those amongst the Christian community. God who created the universe, who created his bride, the church, who spoke his holy word, creates us anew, a new community and a new creation. I read something this week I loved. Old Scottish preachers like to tell a story about a woman who was known for her abiding faith in Jesus. She was old and poor in health, and it was clear she wasn't going to live much longer. A young man regularly visited her as a spiritual seeker and loved to quiz her about her Christian faith in her dying days. One day, he just turned to this old woman and said, true story, suppose after your long life of serving God and all your prayers and all your trusting, suppose that when you die, God just sends you to hell to suffer forever. The woman smiled at the young man and says, don't you know your Bible better than that? If that were to happen, she responded, God would lose more than I sure would lose. I mean, I would lose my soul, granted, which would be terrible. But God, God would lose his honor. And he has made precious promises to me. And if he should fail to be faithful to his promise, his word would be proven untrue. And the universe would end up in ruins. His calling, she said to him, is not just about sovereignty. It's about his faithfulness and love to me. We get in so many theological debates about calling, and we miss the point that the great comfort we have as Christians in the midst of terrible trial is his calling never changes. It gives us hope now and gives us great hope for the future. In 18 small verses, 
As we dive into this new idea of a normal Christian life, we see the questions of suffering and the nature of faith, the raw, honest truth. We're going to face trials, and those struggles can be redeemed. The need for wisdom, the call for prayer, the way to live as a poor Christian, as a rich Christian, the reality of temptation, the goodness and faithfulness of God, the honest picture of sin, the great and glorious gift of salvation. And we need to stop and go, well, God, thank you, amen. So, what are you trying to say to us now? I mean, for this moment, this day, what is your point? As I struggled, and I did this week, to ask, let me give you a few things and I'm done. The first thing I want to say is this. We are stepping out in faith in this church to make more room, and we're risking a lot to do it. We're making more room, and the question many of us are asking, even the leadership is, well, is anyone really going to come? Well, I want to point you to the background of this series Who is the James in your life? Listen. Who is the James in your life? Who is the James in your work, in your neighborhood, your child, your spouse, your friend? Is it your friendship circle? Maybe it's your whole neighborhood. Cry out to the one that elects and keeps on calling. As we are making room, now ask God to move in them. After years of them calling our Jesus mad or dangerous or irrelevant, pray in faith that they won't just become Christians, but they actually will become church leaders and lovers of God. Pray that they will become willing slaves of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You be faithful to your witness and your lifestyle and let God do his job. Jesus is not done calling half-brothers and sisters from skepticism and hate to love and faith. Pray like you've never prayed before for that spouse and that neighbor. As we step out in faith to make more room, say, God, now is the time. Call him. And they call her. They may just be like James. You're mad. You're stupid. You're an idiot. I can't believe you're involved in this Christian. Say, that's fine. That's no problem. God, go get him. That's what you need to be praying. God is not done calling James. And as he got his half-brother, he's going to get many that we're praying for. Two other things. To many of us that gather here, we wonder why our prayers aren't answered. Sometimes God is saying no out of love. But here's a question I have for some of you. What has the Holy Spirit been saying to you over this last 35 minutes? Is there sin in your life? Do you love the world truly more than God? Then you need to ask God for a heart to repent so you will not sort of be double-minded and your prayers hindered. You can call out for wisdom and you want it, but if the Holy Spirit is saying to you right now, This is a blockage. You're double-minded here. Say, God, give me the ability to repent. Many of your prayers may be hindered because you are hindering them. James says, God is a good dad who wants to give us the way to live. But do not be double-minded and kiss the mouth of an idol and kiss the mouth of the living God. You cannot do both. Lastly, let's be honest about the trials we're facing. And I'd like everyone maybe just to close their eyes. The, The band can come back up, but... This is a moment that is significant. Close your eyes and and just hear this. And you at home, wherever you are on the train or in the car, well, don't close your eyes if you're in the car, please. (laughs) But just think on this. One wrote, adversity is to be joyfully embraced as God's good work in our lives. It's a hard statement. He promises to supply all we need, but it's tough. So at this moment, for all of us here and even for everyone in the band too, just stop and think about the trials in your life. Right now, is it sickness? Is it the death of a loved one? Is it a loss of job? Did you lose your marriage? Is it not enough money? Is it a wayward child? 
Maybe it's the aged parents you're trying to take care of. Maybe it's midlife crisis. Maybe there's just no more spark of love in your life anymore for God. Maybe it's an ongoing sin. Maybe it is the demonic themselves. Maybe you're attacked for your faith. Maybe you have mental illness. Maybe those you've looked up to have let you down. Maybe it's family issues that just never go away. Maybe it's just the world we live in, the news, the fears. Maybe you're struggling with old age. At this moment, and it's important, I'd like you to pray a prayer, and it's dangerous, but it's honest. Lord Jesus Christ, you say that I'm going to experience trials in this life, and I feel overwhelmed. So at this moment, I give them to you, and you can list them right now to him, and say, Lord, produce in me a deep faith. Produce in me an abiding faith. Give me a faith that is so real in the midst of pain that people, when they look, will know there's hope beyond this world. I ask this in the Jesus' name who went through this and can sustain me. God, hear our prayers at church. Please come and sustain us and give us a faith that's genuine and rooted and persevering. Help us to live a normal Christian life. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.crotherscreek.ca. 